Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Um, we should get right into it, okay. but um, we're probably not going to have much time for a top of show on our main right. episode, and I didn't want to uh, not ask you your opinion of can banning netflix movies in competition and netflix subsequently pulling out of can completely yeah uh somebody posted on my facebook wall um a vanity fair article uh that was talking about beatrice wells uh orson wells daughter um petitioning i think both netflix and can that like hey uh you know this is an opportunity for my father's film the other side of the wind um, which is a Netflix is going to be a Netflix release. Um, you know, this is a, a chance for people to see it. And, you know, historically can has always really liked Orson Welles. And so, you know, it's a way to, it would be a really good way to kind of trumpet like, Hey, we finally have this thing. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, but putting that aside, it, it's interesting. Uh, last week on More Than One Lesson, I was talking with uh, my co-host, Reed, and we talked for about an hour before we started recording, and we were talking about this, and we were talking about the idea and, and like, Spielberg's uh, comments about Netflix movies f- feeling like they don't really count. Um, that's, and that's so stupid. I see what he means, as far as like what f- what f- movies have always what movies have always been um, to him, right? I guess that's I guess that's true. Yeah, this is look. I'm old now, yeah. but I, at least I hope that I never lose my awareness that old people are the problem in most situations in our society. <laughs> it's in, an inability to let go. Yeah. An inability to understand. You're seeing it like now you've got Mark Zuckerberg testifying in front of Congress for the first time about something that's truly important. Yeah. And he's being questioned by 85 percent people who have no fucking idea how Facebook works or what they're even asking about. Yeah. And just because I mean, we need term limits. We need to get like old people. I hope that I have the the self-awareness as I get older to not stand in the fucking way. That's the problem with old people. (laughs) It's tough. They lose the recognition because I have, you know, there are things that I stand on, on principle. And I just wonder if the principle, like from an artistic standpoint, and I find myself wondering like, Oh shoot, if that principle changes culturally, Mm -hmm. what do I do? You You adapt. Do I? Yeah. That's what, that's how we, that's how we survive. What if it's a philosophy I have? I mean, well, yeah, I guess you, I guess you don't necessarily adapt reflexively. You be okay. open to adapting. Sure. That's a, okay, that I yes. think is the problem. Okay. Yes. Is okay, that, that like, you know, are you clinging to this because you, uh, actually have an argument that this yeah. is the right way or are you just clinging to it because it's what you're used to? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And are you blinding yourself yeah. to the benefits of the other thing, which in this case is Netflix and home viewing and like. This kind of shit, like, look, cinema is a dwindling art form to begin with. Mm-hmm. And, like, assuming you and I get our full lifespans, um, we will, it will become uh, a niche by the time we're old anyway. Yeah. This kind of bullshit uh, from Cannes yeah. is just going to hasten that. Yeah. 
It's, uh, you know, it's interesting. Many years ago, I was, uh, I met a, a guy, a filmmaker uh, named Doc Benson, which I enjoy. Uh, it's just his nickname. Um, and he is a Christian filmmaker, and he made a movie called Seven Deadly Words. And it's not what you would think it would be. The seven deadly words are, we've never done it that way before. Uh-huh. And it's all about how, like, churches, and I've, I've been a, a part of churches, that, like, they have a very specific way of doing things. And I remember uh, my pastor in uh, Nixa, you know, this was a church with very old people. And, you know, the pastor was this young 50-year-old upstart or whatever. Um, and... He he was talking about like that. I I don't mean to to make it only about this, but I do think it's this is this is important that Christians have a tendency to lock into what the church was when they converted. Mm. Like it's the idea. It's like well, that was good enough for me. That's what convinced me. So mm. why should why should it be anything more? You know, there's even a song. I, I believe I even said this in, on the panel that I was on with uh, with Doc. That like, give me that old time religion. It's good enough for me. Like uh-huh. it's it's a constant refrain. And along those lines, I do f- maybe for the same reason that I tend to think that 1999 is the best movie year ever <laughs> because I was 17. Like you had a car, you had freedom. Yeah, and, and I was seeing movies that, that not movies that had been out before I was born. Like oh, there are movies coming out now. How very exciting. Yeah. And I do think that there is probably a tendency, whatever it is that you're passionate about, there came a moment when you sort of decided, you kind of flipped over and it became a genuine passion, if not a goal. And I, I would venture to say that most people, whatever the circumstances were, when they made that flip, they're probably going to get a little bit locked into it. You know, in some ways, good for Steven Spielberg for like, and, and people like him for like embracing like certain types of visual effects. I mean, you know, for good or ill, uh-huh. but, but yeah, but the philosophy like him, it's it, to me, it's not that different than sorry, listeners, people who say like, no film, only film ever. Oh yeah. And yeah, that's, you know, and because yeah, what I think we're seeing with a lot of the um, changes in general in our culture and, you know, uh, uh, with expanding, you know, wokeness in general, yeah. we're seeing that what that good enough for me feeling mm-hmm. tends to become is elitism. It tends to yeah. become the people who got there first, yeah. shutting the door on the people behind them. And then the way you've always done it ends up keeping other people out of this thing, yeah. you know, and that's, uh, that's not helpful for anyone. That's exactly, I mean, the, the, yeah, the, the whole shooting on film and, and preferring film is like, to me, I don't, that's not what I didn't even mean to get into it, but it's yeah, like, sorry. it's the same kind of gatekeeper mentality that I hate. Um, that's a good way of phrasing it. Uh, know. yeah. Um, you know, there was a, a film Twitter debate a, a month or so ago where someone was talking about, um, she started out making, I think good points about like, um, young film critics 
not having a sense of the history of film beyond like the 1980s to them. That's like right. classic movies came yeah. like E.T. is like a classic, you know, yeah. and E.T. is a classic. I mean, I don't think it's that great, but uh, <laughs> uh, in terms of uh, age, it's from a classic. But uh, she started making a good point, but then she started specifically saying like you shouldn't be a critic if you're not familiar with Hitchcock, if you're not familiar with the films of the Hollywood studio system. And to me, once you start being prescriptive about it like that, yeah. that becomes that gatekeeper mentality that i don't like you know and i also i want i I want to read the critic who has an extensive knowledge of you know uh you know i don't know south asian film or whatever and doesn't know anything about uh hitchcock or howard hawks or whatever i want to read that critic why like don't don't put up these these barriers um and i didn't mean this conversation about can to get this deep but that is this is really it's the way it goes and this is what it's about to me it's it's uh, the cinema does not only exist in within these certain parameters that it existed for steven spielberg when he was a boy you know two things I'll talk about Netflix in a moment, but what I will say is like about the, the person who says that like, I, I feel like I can't trust these critics if they don't know older film. Um, I don't think I necessarily agree with that, but what I will say is that what, uh, what I'll talk about is what's, what I think could be underneath that, which is to me, let's say, yeah, you're talking about somebody who, who has uh, an intense, you know, an intensive knowledge, extensive knowledge, pardon me, of, um, Could be both. Okay. All right. Good. Um, then what's even the difference anyway, <laughs> um, of, you know, like South Asian films or something like that. And I feel like it seems to me that if you have that knowledge and you're willing to dig into it, well, undoubtedly, those filmmakers will talk about their influences, their influences, mm-hmm. and they'll arrive at somebody like a Kurosawa, for example, to pick a really obvious example. But then he he says, "Oh, and I was influenced by these people over here," and so it seems to me that everything is film, everything in film is connected and is often linked to the past. And yeah. so, if you're somebody who just is whether you mean to or not, you just know this period and you don't really know anything older. It's like, it seems to me that it's indicative of something that's lacking in your inquisitiveness. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. I do think that I, yeah, I encourage curiosity, but I encourage following your own curiosity and not, not treating, um, your, uh, exploration of cinema like a checklist. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yes, that, absolutely. Um, unless, unless that is satisfying to you. Do you know what I mean? I guess so. Uh, that That's fine. If that's like, it's, if it's exciting to you to look at, you know, the, say the, um, the, the, the sight and sound list or whatever, and sure. say this is, I'm going to watch every one of these in order. If that's exciting to you, that's a great way to do it. Yeah. But like, just don't, don't be doing homework you know that's not what this should be about and don't be don't be assigning homework that's not what we're supposed to do i the idea i feel like critics in general what we are doing is facilitating and uh, elongating a conversation. Sure. We are not gatekeepers. No one should be gatekeepers. Right. Everyone 
Everyone should have a chance to make a movie if they want to make a movie. And so the cheaper it gets to make movies and yeah, you trade off a little bit in yeah. image quality. That's fine. I don't care. Yeah. I really don't care if it means more people if you, get if, to make movies. If the filmmaker is okay with that, if yeah. they're willing to make sure. that sacrifice, then by all means. Yeah. And I'll, I'll watch it. I'll watch, you know, I, you know, like I said, I, and maybe this is like you were talking about, or we were both talking about, you know, how it was when you got into it. I, I've said it on the podcast so many times, like I fell in love with movies on VHS. Yeah. And then that time you're talking about the 1999, like late 90s, early 2000s was this explosion of indie movies shot on mini DV, which look like shit now. Yeah. Chuck and Buck, Dancer in the Dark. These things look terrible. Time code, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but the, that still at least has like the the gimmick. Yeah. Of what it's. But like. I still love these movies and like the idea that I was getting to see exciting stuff um, like Chuck and Buck, yeah. um, cause those were, you know, I mean, the, Mike White and, and the, and, and who was that? Chris White's or whatever. Yeah. Like, or is um, that Paul? I don't remember. I, I, I can never remember. Um, you know, they didn't have the pull they have now. They hadn't made, you know, yeah. um, whatever they made. Uh, anyway, um, they got Chuck and Buck made. It's a weird, uh, funny no. movie that got to be its own thing because they got to make it super cheap. And I would that, like to have seen Mike white in more roles like that. Um, yeah. Where th- Cause he does have a certain childlike quality to him. Yeah. And so, but just, just if you twist it a little bit, it can be genuinely creepy and yet still sympathetic as we saw in that film. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm glad we talked about this. Oh, sorry about Netflix. Here's what I'll say. I recognize that like the big screen experience for some people is not how they were raised, you know, with, uh, on film. I mean, for some people, maybe they couldn't afford to go to movies very often, but they could go to a movie. They could go to a video store or something like that. Yeah. That was me growing up having, you know, a family, you know, not not that I want to like act like I grew up impoverished or you know uh underprivileged like i had a very comfortable I mean, you watched movies through the through the windows of like rich people right <laughs> um no i um i befriended a kindly old projectionist <laughs> um, no uh but yeah i just I, I you know i grew up very well you know taken care of but you know my dad was a mechanic mom was a nurse they had four yeah. kids like going to the movies was not something we did yeah. regularly um as my so, mom would say it was a big production. <laughs> uh, that reminds me of one of my favorite onion headlines of all time. It's like 20 years old now, okay. but, uh, everything a goddamn ordeal with local family. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. Um, oh. any, uh, yeah, more about Netflix. So what I'll say is I do. Okay. The, the film, marketing class that I took Mm -hmm. has really, it hasn't necessarily changed me, but it has, it's, it's made me more open to certain attitudes. And one is this, this idea that like, you know, as a film critic, it'll, you are allowed to be idealistic. You know, you're allowed to say how things should be not as far as how people watch movies, but like, Oh, if only this movie did this, it would be better or whatever, or more effective. Um, and and you can harken back to different times of filmmaking, whatever it is. Um, but of course there is cold, hard reality. And the fact is like when people think of movies, you know, we're still like the dominant generation. And I would say even our generation, I know that we are 
technically millennials, but we grew up different uh, in a different way than people that were born in even 1990, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. Yeah. And so, but I know that for a lot of people our age and probably a a bit younger, there's the concept of like straight to video Mm -hmm. and people, even even friends of mine that weren't movie people knew what that meant. And at this point, the idea of something being direct to streaming, Mm -hmm. it's not exactly that, but amongst people of a certain age, it feels like that. And so what you need, what Netflix needs to do, if they want to be taken seriously by, yes, they can try to shape the conversation or they can recognize that the $20 million they put into their Mudbound campaign Mm -hmm. to get Best Picture is going to be wasted. Meanwhile, Manchester by the Sea, multiple nominations, including Picture and some wins. So, like, what did they do? Well, it required a little bit of patience. If Netflix actually mounted a real theatrical release schedule. Not just a qualifying. Not just qualifying and then, like, hey, here's this. And by the way, you can also watch it on our platform. Give it a month. Mm -hmm. Have it be in theaters for a month. And then you can watch it on the actual. If you do that, then, like, studios and can, I think, would take you more seriously as somebody who values the concept of a cinematic experience i guess what i guess i see what you're saying but what i hear there is let the baby have his bottle kind of yeah because <laughs> i think netflix is more right netflix, but netflix is, is going to outlast them so let them have their bottle now yeah, and then you, you can change them there you right? go yeah all right let's talk about some movies that we watched um some of the here's a movie i went to the theater and saw okay uh, i went to the vista theater one of my favorite theaters in uh in los angeles to see wes anderson's isle of dogs mm-hmm. Um, I love dogs. Absolutely. <laughs> um, what was the last Wes Anderson movie? Um, Grand Budapest. That was the last one. I believe so. Okay. Um, that's four years now, uh, which I guess makes sense if he's making a stop motion film. Right. Yeah. Uh, I guess cause I liked Grand Budapest for the most part. Mm-hmm. I had forgotten how much, uh, Wes Anderson can annoy me. <laughs> Yeah, and but you I, love Fantastic Mr. Fox, I, and I do. I, I really do. That's my favorite. Grand Budapest is probably my second favorite. I wish they didn't kill the cat. Uh, I can't. It's like a reflexive thing. I can't praise Grand Budapest without condemning that a, a sweet, perfectly innocent pet cat yeah. is killed as a joke, and then. He shows the cat's splattered body and then Jeff Goldblum walks around with the cat's carcass in a bag and then tosses it in a trash can. Like, I I can't forget that. Um, It really upsets me. I think that kind of thing would would bother me. But then I think about like a fish called Wanda where just one dog after another is killed as a joke. Uh Um, Yeah, I should watch that again. See if that uh, bothers me now. Um, I guess the humor I really comes do from like they're it. not trying to kill the dogs and it winds up being a dog, an animal lover right. who keeps accidentally killing. I guess that's the humor there. Um, anyway, so wait, where was I? Um, so yeah, those are my, the, I like Fantastic Mr. Fox. I like Grand Budapest. Um, uh, but I, and so my, my hopes were high for Isle of Dogs. Um, and so I didn't, I, I had avoided, I had known there had been some, um, questions raised about cultural insensitivity. I intentionally didn't read those articles right. until after I'd seen the movie. Um, cause I didn't want to go in with that. And I was, I will say, um, it probably, I didn't sense it probably cause it went over my head as a white viewer, not an Asian viewer. Um, the stuff that, that, um, 
uh, uh, Justin Chang and others had, uh, had problems with. I see it now that, mm-hmm. um, uh, basically the, the general, you've seen the movie, right? No. Oh, I thought we had seen it. I thought you had seen it. Um, that's right. Uh, Josh reviewed it Indeed. Uh, for the website and he liked it a lot. Josh is yeah. a big Wes Anderson fan. Um, so, uh, you, is it okay if I say what these complaints? Sure. I, uh, I think I've heard a lot of them anyway. Basically, the idea that the main characters all speak English and the um, the, the the actual Japanese characters, even though it's set in Japan, don't um, makes it. Uh, I guess it contributes to things, long-standing things of like othering and Orientalism, mm-hmm. um, and to use Justin Chang's to paraphrase Justin Chang's words, it, it makes the Japanese characters outsiders in their own country. Um, I see that it didn't, uh, occur to me at, at the time. Um, but it's definitely, those are definitely valid. But what did bother me is just like going back to the cat thing, mm-hmm. just some of that general standard issue, Wes Anderson, general human insensitivity okay. that I, and it, I, I feel like, after it's been four years since Grand Budapest, I liked Grand Budapest. This is, I have to go all the way out to Moonrise Kingdom to be mad about Wes Anderson. Okay, and so I I feel like I'm in a time machine because I'm suddenly feeling all these things that I felt again. Which is I never understand how people can be moved by Wes Anderson movies when people talk about like the it's been a rough year thing in Royal Tenenbaums. That's the one that, that gets me. And nothing gets me because nothing, the whole movie and like every one of his movies, almost every one of his movies is so sealed off from every angle mm-hmm. with his, w- w- with his meticulousness. His movies are so airtight or airless. <laughs> they let the, an, an antiseptic that I don't understand how people, I understand that that's sad. I understand it's sad that, uh, that, um, that Elliot Smith song made make the made Luke Wilson want to kill himself. Um, but <laughs> that's how it works. <laughs> it's been a while since I've seen it. Um, I don't feel anything when this happens. And that's, that it, this must be a problem with me that just, I find his style to be such a thoroughly smothering affectation that I cannot, I cannot relate. <laughs> I can't relate. And this one, this one's in particular because it, it uses, um, and maybe this does overlap with like cultural, like specific Japanese insensitivity. There's a lot of references to actual mass natural disasters, mm-hmm. many of which like tsunamis and nuclear plant meltdowns have actually happened to Japan in the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, and, uh, they seem kind of like jokey references in the movie mm-hmm. to me. I, and I, I just, I, I couldn't get over it. Like I was, um, and I think I left the movie cause I went and saw it with my wife and we were like, we went to the bar afterwards and we were talking about it. She liked it, uh, more than I did. Um, although she had a funny, um, she agreed with, she saw more of the, the racial insensitivity that I missed. And I remember saying to her before the movie, I was like, um, I was like, I want to see this, but I'm afraid it's going to be racist. And she was like, well, we saw the trailer. We know it's racist. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> uh, but she enjoyed it more than I did. But um, I like I, I left the movie thinking like, all right, I mostly had a good time because I do think he's funny a lot of times. Yeah. Although this is a non Owen Wilson script. And I feel like the there's more laughs in the Owen Wilson, the ones he co-writes with Owen Wilson. But there's yes. still some definitely some funny stuff. Um, there's a 
there's a, a recurring visual gag where Scarlett Johansson's character, the character she voices was a, like a dog that was like a show dog that was. And so she, uh, mimics doing tricks, but then she'll say like, but you have to, you have to imagine me balancing a ball on my nose. You have to imagine me juggling bowling pins or whatever. And it cuts to Brian Cranston's character imagining it. And it's even way sillier in his imagination (laughs) than she's making it sound. It's a recurring joke that I laughed at every time they did it. It's very funny. Um, uh, and so, but, but the more I talk about even the course of that night at the bar, just talking about the movie with, with Natalie, like the more I talk about it, the more I dislike the movie, the, the, the the more distance I feel from it. Yeah. I, I think the last movie of his that I really responded to was fantastic. Mr. Fox. There are always elements of his movies that I think Ray finds is great and grand Budapest. And obviously the art direction is, is notable. But yeah, I think we're, we're, the issue becomes a problem for me um, is when the the heightened uh, world of of Wes Anderson when it starts to seep into the dialogue and you have characters making declarative statements in a monotone voice. It happens a lot, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. and it's something that you know for some reason years ago. It seemed to be it seemed to be a bit more organic, but as tends to happen, this is something that happened with like David Mamet. He's the one I always go to, which is he used to write in a really not a really novel way. Specifically, like the speech patterns were a very blue collar kind of speech pattern that you just didn't see in the theater. And then he and then as he wrote movies and he started dabbling in genre. Um, you know, he, the, the concept of mammoth speak mm-hmm. started to evolve right. and suddenly nobody who's ever in the, in the history of the world yeah. spoken the way people do in Spartan or heist. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I still enjoy them, yeah, but especially Spartan. I, absolutely. Um, but as time has, as time goes on, I think like writers, directors, they just get so, <clears throat> excuse me, so locked into what they do. And when you have, People, especially somebody like Wes Anderson, saying like it's great, everything's great. Um, I don't think they're like, oh well, I'm the best, so I'm just going to keep. I don't think it's that. I think it just, you know, I think people just find uh, a groove, or one could say a rut. Um, but I do still think that there are moments of emotion. I think they probably come primarily from the actors transcending the material. Um, in the Darjeeling Limited, there is a the very, only one I haven't seen. There's an incredibly powerful scene that I'm sure I've talked about before where Owen Wilson's character has uh, gotten in an accident. So in the whole film, he's like covered in bandages. Um, And at some point, uh, there's a point late in the film where his character is staring into the mirror, which is the camera, and his brothers are next to him. And he's unwrapping himself and you just see the, the scars on his face. And what Owen Wilson is doing at that moment, it is somebody pointed out that like, this is right about the time of his attempt. And so it's like, you can't help but bring that into it. But like the look on his face, it's not vacant. It is like, it's, it's almost a thousand yard stare and it's just so, it's really powerful. It's the most vulnerable I've ever seen him certainly. Um, so like there are moments where I think actors really elevate the material, um, and, but I also think he he gives them material, fairly good material to work with in the first place. But I think, you know, I didn't respond to Moonrise Kingdom like some people did. Um, yeah. 
with with a couple of exceptions here and there. Like I thought Bruce Willis was great in it. I thought Edward Norton was great in it. Uh, you know, I laughed out loud. I still laugh at, uh, you know, hang on social services. I still laugh at <laughs> yeah, that. <that's> right. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm not going to say he's a bad filmmaker. He's, he's really, you know, he's really great in a lot of ways, but mm-hmm. here's what I'll say is that, uh, when I was TAing for this class over the winter, uh, <laughs> there came a time when we were talking about mise-en-scene and there was a joke amongst the TAs where it's like, all right, we're talking about mise-en-scene. What are we going to talk about? Tim Burton or Wes Anderson? <laughs> like as obvious examples of art direction mise-en-scene yeah. and like, so that you can point from one movie to the next. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But like when you are that obvious of an example, yeah. Eh, yeah. Ca- be careful. I'd uh, round up the trilogy with uh, Jean-Pierre Jeunet. That could work. Yeah. But um, we're also dealing with like young kids who, aren't film majors right but you don't think they know what amelie is though right amelie was a crossover hit wasn't it these kids are 18 <laughs> they, but I'm, I'm, i didn't say they'd seen amelie i'm saying right. they know what amelie is i da- i highly highly doubt it hmm. um speaking of performances well speaking of moonrise kingdom the girl from moonrise kingdom does a voice in isle okay. of dogs uh and speaking of performances we've talked we and everyone else um have talked about how Brian Cranston was so good on Breaking Bad and doesn't seem to be good in movies ever. Mm-hmm. Um, this is th- this voice performance as a dog is the best that he's been in a movie since Breaking Bad, as well, far he, as I can tell. He does have a very strong voice, and I think yeah. he know he knows how to use it. It really is just it, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. You, when you do a voice, you need to be a little bit heightened, and that's him. Yeah. All right, uh, you're up next. All right. So, I uh, as I said last week, I recently. Uh, got access to Hulu. Um, and so there are a couple there. I've been watching some stuff on there. Did you do the Spotify Hulu thing? Have you heard about this? No. Spotify and Hulu, uh, join forces. So now you can like, basically if you have Spotify, you can like add Hulu for another dollar a month. Oh, so you can get both of them for like 11 or 12 bucks total or whatever. Oh, um, I'm not sure. I need to look and see if it, applies retroactively to see if I can yeah, go ahead yeah. and bumble and bundle and save myself yeah. nine bucks a month or whatever. Um, anyway. that's cool. Good for them. I like that sort of thing. Not, not a sponsor, but it just sounds like a good deal. Um, but yeah, so I watched a documentary called becoming bond directed by Josh Greenbaum. And it is all about, uh, George Lazenby. Oh, um, you know, who's the second guy to play bond and in a film I've, I actually haven't seen, and I know, I know you're not a big bond person, but I am to the extent that I know which ones are considered good and which ones are bad. And on her majesty's secret service is considered maybe the best as far as the film right. itself. And people were only kind of responding to George Lazenby, but he was offered multiple movies after. And he said, no, I also think up until skyfall, maybe on her majesty's secret service was the longest James Bond movie. Cause it's like, Two hours and 25 minutes or something. Wow, I did not know that. Um, yeah. And yeah, and all these Bond movies now are, you know, that's how we know they're, they're you know, real movies. Yeah, well, I mean, Quantum of Solace is super short. And it's the bad one. Uh, okay. So, obviously, <laughs> you know, they got to take um, the time. I, by the way, I haven't seen any of the Daniel Craig ones. I just happen to know which ones yeah. are the long ones, which ones are the short ones. I actually didn't see Quantum of Solace because I heard it was so bad. And part of yeah. me was like, well, I feel like I should go back because I, I like the other ones. But it's like it's like 105 minutes, which is like nothing for right, Well, that's, that's not going to take much of my yeah. time. I'll go ahead and watch it. Um, but uh, it's, re- it's an interesting documentary, partially because George Lazenby's... Um, 
life is just fascinating. And it interviews him and he's, you know, he's an old guy. He's very charming. It looks like his nose has been broken. I don't know, 85 times. (laughs) Um, but he's, and he's just very candid about his life. And he just seems to have so much of this is just based on his, the tone of his attitude. And he just seems to be look just to look back on his life and with a, a great deal of delight. Um, because, he recognizes that his name is often is referred to is used as a shorthand. Like it's like, Oh, this person is the Lazenby of what, of something, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, so it goes through and it talks about, it, you know, gives various examples of, of this. And so there was a guy who said, you know, um, with George Clooney as Batman said, Mm -hmm. let's hope he is the Lazenby of Batman's, you know? Um, and it's like, well, that whole movie's bad. But, uh, and so to be part of this giant thing, but be sort of this odd, an odd footnote, because he came completely out of obscurity. Hmm. He was not an actor. He, he was like a car salesman. <laughs> and it's very strange. And he essentially just through a series, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it. Yeah. But through a series of lies, <laughs> to, <laughs> to get his, you know, get this amazing part, and and the studio liked him enough to to offer offer him more, but he uh, turned them down. And so, but so we cut to him; he's narrating the whole time, and we do hear the 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 questioner and all that. Uh, but we see we don't see like documentary footage or old photographs. We see some of them a little bit, but not much. It's mostly like reenactments of the stories he tells. And they're kind of funny. Uh, and at times it's just, it's like, ah, this is a little too quaint. But, uh, there was one where he told this story. Uh, it's really funny cause he also has a fairly thick Australian accent. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks about, oh, when he was a kid, you know, the headmaster at his school just always thought, you know, he, he had it in for me for no reason, you know, like, oh, who brought a snake to school? It was probably Lazenby. He goes, admit, it, okay, I did bring a snake to school. <laughs> and, so, and then he talks about how he had brought a whole, he'd captured a whole bunch of bats in his <laughs> bag, went to school and just opened it uh-huh. and the bats just flew everywhere and he just <laughs> laughed like a crazy person. And so, um, but the little kid, the kid they have playing young George Lazenby, it's, it's a very amusing moment where he's, he's looking in his bag and he goes, time for school bats, <laughs> <laughs> which is, I think that's, I just did more, more New Zealand, but, um, so it's, it, it's very funny and it's, it's informative and I was glad I watched it. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of a trifle in a lot of ways, but, uh, but I, I was very glad I watched it. All right. Uh, I watched, I don't know if you've seen this movie. Um, if you haven't, I need to bring this Blu-ray in and lend it to you. Okay. I watched 1966's Thunderbirds are go. <laughs> I have not seen it. Oh my God. It's so much fun. Um, you know what it is? It's the Maru, what do they call it? Marion, Marion, Amation or whatever. Like it's team America type, you know, marionette stuff. Um, and I'd never, I've never seen the show. It was a TV show first, Thunderbirds. Mm -hmm. And then they made two movies. Um, and, uh, I, I'd never seen the TV show. This is my first experience with the Thunderbirds, um, except for just seeing clips here and there. I I don't even know where it's just, Mm -hmm. I just, cultural references, just things popping up. Um, and this movie is, 
it's hypnotic almost. I'm sure. Because there's these massive, massive set pieces, except of course they're all in miniature. Yeah. But the, the opening, I'm not exaggerating when I say the opening 10 minutes of the movie is because it takes place like a hundred years in the future, but it's still very 1960s, like jet age and every, like everything. Um, but we're sending uh, America is sending men to Mars and they've, they've developed this spaceship that is so massive that it is built in different like, uh, warehouses or whatever on Mm -hmm. different parts of an airfield. And they've built these like hydraulic things to bring it together and fit it into each other. And so there's literally 10 minutes of this thing. Like first an entire like warehouse, like rolls back. And then like this thing, you know, the main shaft like comes up the, 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 the runway. Um, and it's all like on a groove, like track in the ground. Like they bust, they built all this stuff with in miniature and then took 10 minutes of, there's dialogue in terms of you know, like the commander, like right. now attaching wing, whatever, uh, very square sixties <laughs> yeah, yeah. type stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, it's so, that's another thing. I'll get back to that. It's so square the way they talk to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the part when one of the Thunderbirds is in the command center. Um, and he's like giving orders or whatever. And then the, the actual commander, um, who works at the base is like, can you, you know, can you tell me what you're doing? And so he explains the plan to him. And then before he goes back to his plan, he goes, excuse me. <laughs> and it's not a joke. Yeah. It's like, this is, uh, so anyway, your elbows it, off the table. <laughs> that's very much the type of thing this is. Um, and so it's, uh, it's really hypnotic. And then the plot is nothing. There's, it's more just a series of set pieces. Mm-hmm. In fact, there are things that are introduced as plot that never, there's like a sabotage thing that happens in the first time they try to go to Mars. We never find out who the sabotage. There's a whole thing where uh, Lady Penelope, who's the one yeah. uh, Lady Thunderbird, um, you know, chases and catches and then eventually kills this saboteur. We never find out what agency he worked for, what he was trying to accomplish. And then it just like jumps forward a year. <laughs> um, I'm not too worried about it. <laughs> yeah. And then they do the American astronauts do go to Mars and they end up like finding weird signs of like plant life that, I've never been discovered before. Nothing happens with that. <laughs> they just, and then they just come back to earth. <laughs> um, but, and then it has this amazing ending set piece where they're like, the shuttle is going to crash. They can't, um, I can't remember. They can't land or whatever. And then anyway, they have to like, the Thunderbirds have to go and like fix it in midair. Um, okay. as it's like losing altitude and getting closer and closer to the ground. Uh, it's really wow. cool. It's very exciting. It's very tense, but also very slow moving and hypnotic. I could see at that. the same time. I lo- I loved it. Um, wow. And, and so, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's available um, on Blu-ray from Kino Lober, uh, packaged with the sequel. More on that later. Oh, okay. Fair enough. All right. So I uh, there's a re- review of this at BattleshipRetention.com. I watched Jeff Wadlow's uh, Truth or Dare. And you picked a terrifying image for the... Um, Did I? The review. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, it has some some nice imagery. It's officially it's not that bad of a movie. It's just 
you know, whatever, who cares? Who cares? <laughs> it's, it couldn't be, it's, all it did was put me in mind of better movies that it was paying homage to. That's yeah. me being nice. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of It Follows in there. There's a lot of Unfriended, which gets better the more I think about it, by the way. Have you seen Unfriended? No, I hear I should. It's really good. Um, you know, there's obviously some Final Destination in there, but the film's PG-13, so you can't even enjoy that. Um, like, those kills. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> and so, like, you know, you got to have something to recommend this thing. And uh, the actors all do what they can, but for the most part, it's just, it's so... You know, there's nothing wrong with film being predictable. I mean, genre movies usually are like that's uh, one of the key elements of being a genre mm-hmm. film. But but you don't necessarily have, you know, you're tele- they're telegraphing and don't even know it. I mean, I appreciate that they are not winking at us. I appreciate that everybody's fully committed. But it it is astonishing to me that this film. It is. It's astonishing to me that it got made. Because we're living in a, in a pretty good era for horror and a pretty original one. And I'd say Blumhouse is often at the forefront of that. And this just feels like a, like a, you know, what is it? Platinum dunes or whatever the hell it's oh, called. Right. Yeah. Uh, maybe not that. Cause those tended to be like a hard R, but it just, it's, it's just a, and it was probably made for an eighth the cost of one of those platinum sure, dunes movies sure. too. Um, so, you know, it, it, it has a couple moments here and there. What I will say is that its ending is hmm. great. And I mean, it's the very end. It is okay. solid. I didn't see it coming. But in retrospect, I should have. Because they were building to something. And I didn't realize it in the moment. They were building to something thematically. They were bu- building to something narratively. And as far as character arc. Hmm. And they were building to that ending. But I didn't know it. And but is it worth it? I don't think so. Okay. But it's, it, it came close because it caused me to rethink everything that came before. And if I were to watch the movie again, which God help me if that ever happens, but if I ever watch the movie again, uh, I'll be looking for those things and I wouldn't be surprised if it got better to me on the rewatch, knowing where we're headed and knowing what to look for. Um, but for the most part, yeah, it's hmm. the thing that gets me is that, and I, I texted you uh, about this, um, and it's going to lead to an episode sometime in the future that, uh, uh, you know, when you go to these, a lot of these screenings, there'll just be like a, a still like publicity yeah, yeah. image uh, up front. And I noticed it there, but it's on every poster. It says Blumhouse's yeah. Truth or Dare. And I feel like it is very rare. I don't remember the last time. I mean, certainly we all talked about this with Pixar, that like we talk about the company itself more than any of the specific directors. Yeah. Um, but it never said Pixar's Toy Story 3. It didn't? It said Pixar. Okay. But it didn't say it, it wasn't, wasn't. possessive. Yeah. Okay. And so it's interesting to me that, uh, that Blumhouse is, is doing that. Like at this point, it's its name means something. And I'm sure a lot of that is due to, you know, get out and probably split and that sort of thing. But, uh, but was the, um, the conjuring them? Was that, was that them? I don't know. I'm Uh, asking you. I don't remember. (laughs) There are people who like follow this a lot, but, but I know that, yeah, Blumhouse has been turning out some, some really good stuff. And, but if I were them, I would, I'd, uh, I would not be, (laughs) 
champ, you know, championing this film as like one as our latest uh, uh, opus. But um, uh, and now there's Blumhouse Tilt or BH Tilt or whatever, which is like the even lower budget I yeah. guess version yeah. which I'm yeah uh, they have one coming out called Upgrade, Upgrade which I um, am going to see okay alright uh, next up for me also out this week is Brad Payton's Rampage okay. starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson and um, Academy Award nominee Naomi Harris um, and Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Malin Ackerman and Jake Lacey and Joe Manganiello um uh yeah i think that's uh oh also um uh, what's his name jack quaid i think is his name he was one of the dumb brothers from logan lucky oh got it okay um anyway good cast is what i'm saying most of them not doing great work because there's nothing because there's nothing to yeah okay uh for the most part um and and i know i've like sent i wrote my review today i posted it. i've since you know checked out some reviews some people that I know and like enjoyed the movie on uh, on a basic level. I couldn't even do that. Like the movie has a prologue that I really liked. Mm. It starts in space. It's uh, a horror scene. I, we were talking off mic about doing an episode on space horror yeah. as a subgenre, um, which is just an excuse for me maybe to rewatch Event Horizon, which I've been meaning to do for a long time. Because I remember think really liking it. Yeah, do but you think I, it's going to get better or worse? <laughs> I think it's going to get could, worse. It could go either way. Yeah. Um, it could end yeah, up being I, a thing that I like for completely different reasons than sure, I liked when I was sure. in eighth grade or whatever. Um, anyway. Um, so, uh, uh, so yeah, by the end of the, the, that opening, I was like, okay, this is going to be like kind of cool. Um, and then it just gets progressively dumber. Um, and it has no, like everything's enormous and it has a few cool ideas. There's a, there's a, um, plane crash sequence that's better than the one in the mummy, which isn't saying much, but I know everyone like ragged on the mummy one. And so I just want to point out, yeah that uh while i didn't like this movie at least the plane, plane crash sequence is is better more i'll get back to the plane crash uh, uh, there's another time when there's a um uh this is pretty clever they're on the top of a building that's going to be to- uh, like a skyscraper that's gonna be falling mm-hmm. and there's a helicopter on top of the skyscraper but it's tail is pinned down by wreckage or whatever yeah. so it's essentially the helicopter is stuck to the top of the skyscraper but Dwayne the rock johnson um, sorry, his character's name is, uh, David Okoye. Um, no, Davis, Davis Okoye. Uh, he realizes, okay, if I get in the helicopter and turn it on and hover, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, As yeah. the building's falling, then I can like keep from feeling the impact. Cause I'll yeah. be staying in the air just above the building. It's a, it's a cool idea. Yeah. It's like, but, uh, you know, if an, ele- if, if an elevator is falling, you just jump at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Problem um, solved. The, the character compares it to riding an avalanche. Oh, okay. Um, so there are cool ideas, but nothing is particularly visually impressive. Um, I feel like Brad Payton is kind of a, um, could, uh, as much as I am not a fan of Michael Bay, he could learn a thing or two from Michael Bay <laughs> in terms of how to, um, to, to fit this sort of, uh, the scope and the special effects and the wreckage and everything into the shot in a, in a, in a, in a meaningful way. Um, Michael Bay's, uh, Michael Bay has never had a problem composing, compelling images right he just has a problem making any one image in his film have anything to do with the one that follows or the one yeah. that came before or, that's that's or always any image been... last longer than a split second <laughs> yeah yeah that, that's always my big problem with michael bay is uh that yeah it's just a bunch of 
cool looking shots that anyway, that's not the point. The point is the rampage, uh, is bad. Um, but the, yeah, there's no sense of reality. And so there's no sense of stakes, even though this is the rare, you know, it, every big blockbuster movie for the past few years has ended with a city being destroyed. This time yeah. it, it gets to be Chicago. Um, uh, but they always like find some bullshit like way of like, Oh yeah, we evacuated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there is like an evacuation in progress while this is happening, but this is the rare movie that actually acknowledges that people are getting killed yeah. while this is happening. But again, it was, I like that in, in theory, but, uh, it, it Nothing, nothing sticks because there's no, again, there's no stakes. And part of it is because it definitely, this movie with four different credited screenwriters working in different teams or whatever. It's a movie that feels like that. It feels like it was written by committee. It has anything, it has almost anything, um, uh, distinct filtered out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, it doesn't understand it. It feels like it was written by the dumbest people on Twitter because it doesn't understand the difference between just reacting to something and actually having a punchline. Oh yeah, okay. So there's like a part when, um, uh, you know, basically a, a giant crocodile kills or hurts a bunch of people at once, mm-hmm. and Dwayne the Rock Johnson's response is to go, "Well, that sucks. That's not, <laughs> that's not a joke. That's just reaction." Yeah. Um, uh, and, and that, and that bothered me. Um, but what I will say, the only times I laughed mm-hmm. are because there is one actor in this movie that one of the ones that I named who gets the movie that he's in. And that's Jeffrey Dean Morgan, Jeffrey Dean Morgan. I could see that because I mean, he's, he can't help but be a ham and mm-hmm. sometimes it calls for it. I look, I don't love, but I have somewhat defended the red Dawn remake. Okay. Just as just because there are sometimes there are movies and I wouldn't, I want not the mummy. I wouldn't defend, but sometimes there are movies that I feel like it just becomes fashionable to pile on. And it's like, no, this is just a regular, like not that great movie or in the mummy's case, a regular bad movie, Mm -hmm. but it's not remarkably bad. And that's kind of how I felt about red dawn, but he plays Jeffrey D. Morgan plays the, 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 the powers booth role from the first one. Yeah. That's the, he's made for these kind of roles. And so here, um, his character reminded me of, did you ever see two guns in the movie that I really no. like his, his character, um, uh, in this movie reminded me of Bill Paxton's character in two guns in that he's a government agent, but he's, and he's, um, you know, secretive and connected and powerful, but he's also kind of like a, uh, you know, shit kicking hick, like country, country fried good old boy, yeah. you know, at the same time. So like, like Jeffrey D. Morgan's character wears a black suit. He's a government agent, but he also wears an enormous, like ornate gilded, like nine millimeter <laughs> on his, like on his belt with a huge belt buckle with his black suit. Um, uh, and yeah, and he, he, I won't, I won't give you the context. So I don't want to ruin it, but there is a moment where he has a similar thing to the, well, that sucks where he has a reaction or something where he just says, holy shit, but he sells it. And it's yeah. the biggest laugh for me. And I think judging by the audience, I think it was the biggest laugh in the movie. Jeffrey D. Morgan saying, holy shit, uh, because he just knows, well, he just knows how to do this kind of role apparently. Yeah. And that is also not a punchline, but if you do it right, it could be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, rampage. I can't, I can't recommend it, but, uh, I wish everyone was on the same page as, as Jeffrey Dean Morgan, especially I, I, Malin Ackerman is an actress that I like and is, and is often yeah. funny, you know? Yeah. Um, and she's, uh, just a garden variety villain here. She's just like, mm. 
we don't even understand what her motivation is except i guess to just win she's like yeah she's like the worst like the lowest rung of batman's rogues gallery except she doesn't even have like a name or costume yeah <laughs> if, if like batman had a villain that was just like rich ceo oh yeah okay <laughs> that, that would be it yeah um yeah like just right out of the 90s just like any <laughs> any steven seagal villain like yeah. we got it yeah um all right okay so um last film for me is a doc an hbo documentary directed by jason h-e-h-i-r hair h-e-h-i-r yeah Ooh. yeah maybe yeah maybe hair I'm not yeah i don't know higher anyway. Higher, perhaps. Uh, but yeah, he made a documentary called simply called Andre the Giant. And it oh, is right. about uh, Macho Man Randy Savage, <laughs> obviously. Um, no, it's... Uh, and you know, it's it's fine. It's it, He has an interesting story. Uh, he died too soon because he was... You know, he had uh, what is referred to... You know, what is more commonly known as gigantism... Um, that could have been treated, but he opted not to have it treated because it would have impacted like his career and what people knew him, uh, as. And so there was a very specific, he just had a very, a a certain type of fatalistic attitude about his life. Um, but really just loved doing what he did. And, and I think where the film I, I, I've seen other documentaries about Andre the Giant before, uh, and this is really not that different. Where this one, as far as the as far as the information given, it's not that different. As far as where this film is a cut above the other ones I've seen is just as far as like talent. It interviews obviously somebody like a Hulk Hogan and Vince McMahon and Ric Flair. All right, that's obvious, but various members of Andre the Giant's family, um, his daughter. It interviews Rob Reiner, Carrie Elwes, Robin Wright, Billy Crystal because of Princess Bride. It interviews mm. Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is just like friendly with Andre the Giant. And well, you said Carrie Elwes, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, and so it's just it's so it's neat to see this many people that that you know of talking about this guy, and it's especially fun when you have all these. They're not in the same room but they all have their stories about the same thing. Like apparently Andre, the giant, sorry, loved flatulence, thought it was the funniest thing (laughs) in the world and would just like, let it rip. And so it goes into this little montage of like, everyone knows about this. Mm -hmm. And so everyone like does an impression of an, I'm sorry, an Andre, the giant fart. And, (laughs) and it's just, and it's, it's kind of funny. And it just speaks to the fact that, he just was who he was. He liked what he liked. There's another, there's another montage about just how much he drank. Yeah. And I've heard these stories. Yeah. yeah it's legendary. Yeah. Um, but it's, but aside from, so it's, it's well-structured and, and, and at times it's very moving. Um, and it's nice to see people that you think of, you know, we, we all think of Hulk Hogan as kind of an asshole, which he mostly is. But in this moment, he's very vulnerable, and he clearly feels very grateful to Andre the Giant for for selling his career, basically. Um, because a big part of they they talk a little bit about wrestling in that you know if you and I were to fake a fight mm-hmm. and you and you do like this awesome move, 
well, my, I don't mean to say wrestling is fake. We all know what I mean when I say this. It's not a, it's not a hundred percent real fight, but if you were to like throw a punch. It's choreographed. It's not the same as fake. Right, right. You know, um, when you see, uh, when you go to the, the, I don't know, ice capades or the ballet yeah. or whatever, yeah. it's choreographed. It doesn't say, mean it's fake. I'll say predetermined. Let's say this, um, where you're not trying choreographed to. choreographed is all right, fair because enough. Because uh, I, I think it allows people to understand that pro wrestlers are still yeah. athletes and performers and what they're yes. doing is really hard. Yes, athletes and performers. That's, yeah. And that speaks to, yeah, what I was going to say is like, if we were to get in, in one of these fights, we're not actually trying to hurt each other, but we need to, but we're also not merely trying to sell the reality. We need to sell character. And so if, if you like take a swing at me and it's supposed to connect... Uh, my, it is my job just as much as yours, probably even more so to sell the punch. And so they talk about Andre the giant and how selfless he could be because there's actually also a lot of ego where even when everybody is doing what, what they're supposed to be doing, if, if I don't feel like selling you, I won't, Hmm. you'll still win. You'll all of that, but you're not going to look quite as powerful if I don't want you to. And, and Andre the giant, like in situations where he felt like the person he was going up against was getting a little too cocky. Yeah. He would not put them over. (laughs) Uh, and, but he did, but he worked very hard to put Hulk Hogan over because he recognized I'm getting older Mm -hmm. and we need a new image for wrestling. And this is kind of it. And this is going to put him over for life at this point. And so it's, it's, so there are very specific details about his life and about wrestling that is interesting. And I was glad I watched it, but by and large, it's not really that different than just talking heads. Okay. Um, last movie for me, uh, 1968's Thunderbird six. Yeah. Which is weird. It's the second one, but it's called Thunderbird six. It's like Uh, Leonard. It's very much like Leonard part six. Um, uh, and this one, I, I, this part of it is that the spell had worn off or, or, or the, um, bloom was off the rose as the saying goes. Um, uh, and I already knew what to expect. And there is still plenty of impressive model work, but also this is just a much more, and I feel stupid saying this because I just got through saying that the story, there's no story to Thunderbirds ago, mm-hmm. but this is even more slight. It's even sillier. Yeah. Um, uh, the only thing I really liked about it was that, I think I'm pretty sure, and I didn't realize this. I'm pretty sure it must have been a major inspiration for my one of my favorite Archer episodes. Okay, which is have you watched Archer? Yes, Did, I think I. Well, this is a season one episode. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, called Sky Tannic. Okay, which is the they're on a uh, the the Moiden, Moiden voyage. No, the mm-hmm. maiden voyage of like an luxury air ship. Okay, yes. Um, and that's what happens in this one. And so I kept thinking like, oh, I should, Scott Tannick is really funny. Um, <laughs> uh, that's, that's when he's as one of the stupidest Archer jokes when he's like reading off the, uh, code to make sure the bomb doesn't go off mm-hmm. and he, and he's doing it over the radio and he says, they can't understand if he's saying M or N and then it cuts to like whoever, like back at the thing listening. And it sounds like he says, N for Nancy and then they cut the wrong one and they cut N and it explodes or whatever. And he's like, I thought you said no. And he's like, yeah, M M for Nancy. Anyway, we're not just, I I could just talk about Archer instead of talking about Thunderbirds. Um, 
but but here's the thing that really left a sore uh, sore taste a bad taste in my mouth about thunderbird six is that so lady penelope so there's the let's see there's jeff tracy um uh former retired astronaut millionaire jeff tracy who runs the secretive uh international rescue which all all the thunderbirds are Mm -hmm. and there are five uh thunderbirds i guess his five sons i guess and they each have their own like ship today and then there's lady penelope who's a part of the team but not a part of the family Mm. um and she's fab one uh instead of thunderbird one or thunderbird whatever anyway so she's a super rich english lady who has a servant named parker and in the first one parker is like kind of a badass like he's funny he's got these droopy eyes and he talks very like yes my lady but he's like can drive like a stunt driver and like he can do all this. He's awesome in the first one. In the second one, the movie like seems to be going out of its way to be mean to Parker. Like (laughs) at the beginning, near the beginning, they play a prank on him. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there's a scene. This is what I'm talking about, that this isn't just incidental. There's a scene of Parker being outside the room, listening to them laughing at how he reacted to their prank <laughs> and being sad. And it seems like the kind of thing that is going to have like, uh, there's going to be some comeuppance or there's going to be like, Oh, we love you Parker. But no, that's the end of that storyline is that he listens and he's sad. And then at the end they forget him when they're escaping from the crashing airship, they forget him. He luckily grabs onto the bottom of the plane that's taking off, but they don't realize that they land. Um, uh, they forget him. They're like, Oh, we forgot Parker. The thing crashed. There's no way he's alive. Oh, well, I guess he's dead. And then he's still there. And then they all laugh. <laughs> Cause he's like all beat up from hanging on the bottom of the plane. And he's like, the lady. And then <laughs> it's insane. I don't understand what in between the two movies, maybe like the guy who voices Parker really pissed off maybe. Uh, the filmmakers or something. Uh, it's really stupid. Uh, yeah, that one didn't, um, uh, it, it didn't do as much for me. Uh, but there's a cool part with, uh, marionettes skiing. Oh, neat. Cause they're taking this airship around the world. And so they keep stopping in different locations. So you see them at the pyramids, you see the grand Canyon and they're like, and so at one point they're in Switzerland and they're skiing. And that was visually, that was my favorite part of, of the movie was just, they created a whole like snowy mountain, um, you know, miniature and they skied marionettes down it. Hmm. Uh, anyway, that's uh that's all i watched uh for movies you were also caught up on movies here yes um so we both have a tv show to watch yeah i just got or to talk about it. i just got done talking so why don't you go first uh yeah so i mean i of course watched survivor and this was the merge episode when the two tribes come together and uh, it was what I needed it to be, and it's what the season needed it to be, because there was a, uh, a storyline up until this point of these two guys that just are rivals from the beginning. They were on the same tribe, but then they got split up again. Um, not again, sorry. It went from like two tribes, and then there was a mix-up, and then they went to three tribes, and so like these guys couldn't get at each other but then now the merge comes and you see them both just lining up their soldiers uh to see what happens and uh i'll say this the side that i wanted to win won uh and won decisively which is nice um but uh but yeah it's it's everything you know 
Survivor is in many ways silly, especially when talking strategy. And when the characters, and I, the fact that I say characters, you know, when they're so, like, breathily talking about, like, you know, it's it's either him or me. It's like, yeah, no one's going to die. <laughs> it just means you're out of the game. And I recognize that it's high stakes. You could win some good money. But, uh, but yeah, it's just that. But it's, it's so easy for the players to get wrapped up in that. Yeah. Admittedly, they're not sleeping. They're not eating so yeah. they're probably losing their minds a little bit uh and and the show absolutely plays that up and so but it's rare actually f- for there to be a rivalry this palpable um on the show and so when there is uh you know if you read any kind of commentary or, or listen to any podcasts about survivor um like our friend uh rob sesternino's uh podcast you know the merge has been anticipated if for no other reason than because all right these two guys are together and they like one of them is going home on the merge episode because they will not be able to stop each other to stop themselves from going after one another and sure enough it happened um the downside is that like i don't i don't know how interesting it's going to be from now on Hmm. uh because that was a really solid storyline i'm sure something too early maybe maybe that's the fear that's the fear yeah it could yeah it could stay good. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're good players. It's, it's actually shaping up to be a, a pretty good season. It has been so far. There are players that I like and, um, you know, there are a lot of advantages, a lot of immunity idols. Like they just keep throwing them at players, which is on one hand, it's bothersome because you, it, it kind of disrupts pure gameplay. But when you have five or six or seven people with either an idol or an advantage mm-hmm. or they have immunity, but nobody knows what anybody else has. Like, okay, all right, now it's getting really interesting. Um, because the guy who went out, he could have played an immunity idol, and he could, and he would have been fine. But uh, but he didn't. Uh, it, he didn't think he was in danger, and so he went out with it. But uh, anyway, so uh, it's it's a good season so far, and I and I like it. I was going to say it sounds like that happens all the time. But maybe I just hear about it when it happens because it's noteworthy. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's it's noteworthy. Like because this is go- okay. All right. This is Ghost Island, uh-huh. so it, a lot of it is they they bring back elements of past seasons, you know that are that are cursed. You know, uh-huh. not, I mean, they don't play that up that much, but um, and so and and it's a, it's a, it, it's essentially like oh, here's an immunity necklace or an advantage or an idol that was not utilized well or at all, and so the the idol that this guy found previously went out. Uh, I think it was two seasons ago, maybe hmm. three, um, in which this guy, JT, thought he was very safe at Tribal Council and he did not play the idol. And so this guy specifically says, like, well, I'd, I hope I can do Break better. Break the curse. It's like, oh, well. <laughs> so. Ghost Island sounds like Scooby-Doo, but then I realized that's because the second Scooby-Doo live action movie was called Monster Island, I think. Monster Island, that's right. I saw both of those, by the way. I know. And I watched the first one with you. I don't think I watched the second, even though uh, the kid in me thought it looked awesome. Um, yeah, didn't, uh, James Gunn like wrote those, right? Did he? Uh, Monsters Unleashed is what it's called. Okay. Did he write both of them? Um, yeah, he did. Oh. Uh, and I, I, I had forgotten that. I remember it because it was in, um, uh, there was a recent, uh, Entertainment Weekly that had a whole, like three quarters of the issue was just about Avengers, Mm -hmm. uh, or about Infinity War and stuff. Uh, and they were, and they had a little sidebar about Sean Gunn oh, yeah. playing uh, Rocket Raccoon, 
and James Gunn was talking about like he was on set for like when he came up with the idea of having someone crouch down and be there and play Rocket Raccoon. It was because he said like I wrote these Scooby Doo movies. I was on set. I watched uh, I watched Matthew Lillard try to act with a tennis ball, and yeah. I decided I wasn't going to do it that way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's how that happened. Right. Anyway, uh, TV show I watched. I finally uh, Natalie and I finally finished watching Netflix's Mind Hunter. Oh, did you right. watch this? I did. Yes. Um, I I, mean, I feel like what the show became. I think is. A, really good, and also B, I feel stupid that I didn't see it from the beginning, Mm. that this is not, this was not a show about the psychology of serial killers, it's a show about what being around serial killers does to the psychology of other people. Right. Um, And I feel like, in a good way, never have I watched a show with my wife that we've so often had long conversations after each episode about, like, what do you think that character was thinking? Why did that character do that why did that character say that whose side are you on you know what i mean and it changes like in some cases i'm like i'm on holden's side but in some cases especially near the end of the season i'm very much not on holden's side and i'm on wendy's side um but my wife was like still withholding because not withholding she's not a withholding person (laughs) um uh because she's i think i'm much more uh, and this is, we ended up talking about our own psychology. I'm yeah. much more than her and much more than you and much more than most people I know. Um, I think, uh, if rules work and have justification behind them, I am all for following the rules. Okay. I know I like refer to myself as like a punk rocker and stuff. And yeah. I still do feel a lot of that. And I do think that rules that are stupid or harmful, uh, yeah. ought to be broken and, and flagrantly. But, um, I believe in, order and hierarchy and stuff yeah. once for systems that work. And so near the end I was, uh, you know, as Holden started to get a little more brazen in the field, right. uh, I was definitely team Wendy. Um, yeah. also because she's played by Anna Tor from fringe, who I'm happy to see. Um, but, uh, uh and I forget there was something else I was, I was going to say about it. Um, oh, it was on the tip of my tongue, but, uh, yeah, I, I you liked the show quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's I started off being fifty fifty. I think early on, I think in the way the I liked all the serial killer stuff early on. I think yeah. in terms of setting up the behavioral science unit to become what it needs to become, what it yeah. did become, I feel like they hit in the first half, maybe even just the first three episodes or so hit some notes that felt kind of cliched especially with the, uh, the director. Yes. You know, who's like, I'm so mad. I'm shutting you down. Yeah. And then like, there's one in passion speech. He's like, all right, you get one more chance. And that happened like three times. Uh, that kind of bothered me, uh, early on, but, um, by the end I got, I got really into it. I'm really looking forward to, to the next, uh, the next season of Mindhunter, and it definitely ends on a on an ambiguous note as far as this this one character that we just keep seeing. Um, well, did you look him up though? No, I, I specifically did not. Oh, okay. Um, Do you even know which killer that is? I don't. I uh, no, I don't. Okay. And I, I, I it sounds weird because I. On one hand, part of me is like, well, if he's a real guy, I can just look it up and it's fine. And I think you should because I, I think. What you're thinking has happened and what you're thinking is going to happen is none of that's true. Oh, okay. All, All right. right. That's exciting. Um, 
but I don't want to spoil it for people. Uh, if you want, we can talk about it off mic, but I don't want to spoil it for you if you don't want. Yeah. But not, uh, yeah. And nonetheless, it's still, I'm, I'm very excited to see what happens next. Cause they do a very good job of establishing the world and the characters and the tone, certainly. Um, and I'm kind of a sucker for these videos where they show like, visual effects in movies and TV shows that you wouldn't think oh, have yeah. visual effects. Oh, yeah. They did one for Mindhunters, and it's f- astonishing. Yeah. Um, it's just one mind, just the one Mindhunter. Oh, right. Sorry, I'm thinking of the film with Christian Slater, I believe, right? Oh, are you? I thought you were just doing that thing that oh. uh, people used to do at the video store. All the, I don't understand yeah. why, but people would always be like, do you have beautiful minds? Like, everything would just be <laughs> pluralized for some reason. Do you have the Mindhunters? That's, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> 